Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Again, it's so good to have you here. Uh, I'm excited for Casey. Uh, Casey uh, is married to Holly and uh, has a wonderful daughter named Bailey. And he's also a father, an author, a pastor, and a spiritual, I just call him a spiritual formation director. Uh, He is like the press secretary for Parkview. Uh, So when the pastor gets sideways theologically and he says something that he shouldn't, I mean, pastors never do that. I know that. They, they, They just are perfect all the time. But when a pastor gets up and says something that maybe somebody has a question about, uh, Casey gets to uh, field that question and take care of business. And so, I, I mean, kudos to him. Um, I don't know how he does it, but I just know pastors can tend to be a little bit crazy at times when they get a mic. And so, so that's what he does for Parkview. He guides people. He coaches people one-on-one. Uh, it's an important job. Spiritual formation is essential to the life of a believer. And so um, I'm just so glad that he can come and share this morning with us. If you don't know, uh, Casey is... Uh, a fan of the team up north. Now, many of you know that I'm an Ohio State Buckeye fan, and the, the fact that this friendship has managed to last this long, uh, the fact that he's even in this building is a miracle. It just goes to speak the power of Jesus. We don't like to use the, the Michigan word in this, in this setting here, um, but today, uh, Casey's a Michigan fan, unfortunately. And, um, but, but, you know, there is some good that can come out of Nazareth. And so, um, so we're going we're gonna to let him come this morning. Would you please, please, by the way, I forgot to tell you, he is the author of Becoming Curious, uh, which is a book out here which you're, is available for purchase after the service and for you to talk with Casey about after. But would you give Casey Tigret a warm JF welcome this morning? Casey. I actually spent some time in Ohio. I did, I did time in Ohio. And, um, you know, I learned about, I, I, you know, I wanted to be graceful. So I learned about Buckeyes. I did a little bit of study about them. And I don't know if you know this, but Buckeyes are poisonous nuts. Did you know this? I'll let you make up your mind about what the rest of that's about. It's part of my life, part of my story as a person is, um, is moves like that. So I, uh, I've, I've lived in three different states in my lifetime, and uh, one of them is the great state of West Virginia. That's where I grew up, and if you want to know what West Virginia looks like, I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture? That's what West Virginia looks like in the fall, and that's not photoshopped. It's this beautiful red and orange and yellow. I grew up there, but, you know, I grew I. Went through high school and decided to go on to college. And when I went to college, I moved to the state of Ohio and went to Mount Vernon Nazarene University. And um, you never miss a shot, do you? And so it was great to transition to go there. That was where a lot of my development and growth as a person happened was at Mount Vernon and in the state of Ohio, sadly. Uh, But I met some of my best friends there. I met my wife there. We're going to be married 18 years this coming August, which um, I'm very excited about that. 
uh, that she's stuck with me for this long. And uh, so we made some friends, and we decided we were thinking we were going to stay there, we we're going to live there forever, because when you're in college and you have all your friends nearby, you're like, let's just do this forever. And then they all got jobs and moved. And we were left there by ourselves, and we thought, well, this isn't what we signed up for. And so eventually we decided to make the move to the great state of Illinois and the great city of Chicago. And it's been a beautiful, beautiful, yay, Chicago, that's right. It's been a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing for us. But what I noticed about that is change is a part of my life. Most of the major movements that God has done in my life have come because of change. And those are changes that I chose. I chose to move. I chose to do those things. I chose the friends that I had. I chose to marry the person that I married. But what about change that doesn't happen because we choose? What about change that comes as a result of someone else's choices? What about change that ends up being painful because of that? The thing that happens when it's not your fault, but it's now your responsibility, that kind of change? The kind of change that derails you and shifts the plan that you had for your life. See, because change is, is common to our, all human beings. As a matter of fact, in the last minute that I've been talking, 40,000 of your skin cells have died. Did you know that? That's why you feel exhausted right now. Something's actually going on. You're not going to leave this room with the same skin you came in with. You are constantly changing, as disgusting as that might be. You are constantly changing. And so even as common as it should be, it's still one of those things that takes us by surprise, that spins our heads, that damages our confidence, that pulls the rug out from underneath us. So what happens? What happens when we don't choose something and it shifts on us? What happens when pain comes because something that we had trusted and wanted and longed for suddenly is taken from us? What do we do with those moments? I think in those moments it is great to start asking some questions. Now, you may have grown up in an environment where questions were out of the question. That was an odd pun. You may have grown up in that kind of environment where it wasn't don't ask, just believe it, and go forward. I grew up in that kind of environment. That was the church I grew up in. The kind of questions about faith that came up, they're like, no, you just believe, you just have faith, and you just keep going. But the problem with that is it's so counter to who you and I are as human beings. We are born with curiosity as our native software. It's built into us. You don't have to teach a child to be curious. It's in there from the beginning. As a matter of fact, researchers tell us that kids up to the age of four, when they become verbal, ask between 300 and 400 questions a day. And 95% of those are just the word why, you know, <laughs> why, why? But something happens to us after age four that it just drops off, like it drops off a cliff. What happens after we turn, what happens when we begin to go into school? What happens when we begin to interact with other people, when we begin to grow up? I think one of the reasons curiosity disappears is because we have Google and Siri now. What do you need to know that you can't ask them? I usually do, hey, Siri, right now, but my phone will go off wherever it is, so I stop doing that. But if you ever get a chance, ask Siri to divide zero by zero. Don't do it right now, but at some point, make a note to do that. It's a fantastic thing that happens to you. Some of it's that. Some of it we're just busy. We've got other things going on that we need to get to. I don't have time to actually process and ask and answer some significant questions. I think a lot of it, though, is that when we ask a question, it implies that we don't know. 
And so we want to manage the way people see us because to say we don't know means we don't have our act together and none of us want to be seen as not having our act together. And yet those are the things we need. Those are the things that we want. And Jesus even welcomes this. So one of the texts in the Gospels that I love is from Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. Wait, do you, do you mean that unless you become the 300 to 400 questions a day kind of child, do you mean that in this world of cancer and job layoffs, of taxes, of weddings and funerals, of, of glorious transformation moments, of wonderful times with friends, and of Cubs losing streaks, in that kind of world, I'm a Cardinal fan too, so that's in the cards for me. Does it mean that in that kind of world, unless we learn to ask curious questions, we might miss the bigger picture of what God is about? Unless you become like a little child, it's not that you're not allowed into the kingdom of heaven, it's that you might miss it entirely. Unless you're willing to ask those critical questions that we all have bubbling up inside of us. And man, is there any better time for us to ask good, deep, holy questions than we in, when we are in the full throttle process of change? I don't think so. And I think there's some stories that help us, one particular one in the Bible that helps us with that idea. And so that's what I want to talk about today. If you're a Bible person and you brought yours with you, I'm in Luke 24 this morning. If not, it'll all be up on the screen. But one of the things that I want to process with you is how change actually happens so that we have a framework in which we can ask some of these questions. When change happens, three things always occur. Something always dies, something comes to life, and things are never the same again. Every change you and I go through, something dies, something new comes to life, and things are never the same again. So in Luke 24, what's happened is Jesus has been crucified. And the disciples have scattered, and they've gone to all kinds of different places. In the meantime, the news has gotten around through some of the women who are close to Jesus that he has risen from the dead. And people are handling that in various different ways. Some of them believe it, some of them are freaked out, whatever that might be. But there are two people that we know that were close to Jesus, part of his followers, who have taken off and they're headed away from Jerusalem. They're running from the story that Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're headed towards a place called Emmaus. And Emmaus is about 17 miles from Jerusalem, so it's a, it's a decent walk. I don't know if you've ever walked 17 miles. That's a ways. Um, so they're running away from this. And that's what typically happens to us in the process of change. By the way, when something traumatic happens, we tend to run from it. We find something to distract ourselves, we find something to give our time to, and we run from it. So these guys that are leaving, these people that are leaving Jerusalem for Emmaus, they're just doing what you and I do. When something bad happens, let's turn, let's go in opposite direction. And so they're on their way, and what happens in the middle of this is Jesus actually shows up and comes up beside them. And this is what it says in Luke 24. It said, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. These are people that had been with Jesus. This amazing thing had just happened. He comes up and walks right beside them, and they have no idea who he is. 
The text says they were kept from recognizing him. And a lot of scholars would say God kept them from recognizing who Jesus was. I don't believe that. I disagree. And here's why I disagree. Because if you've ever been in the process of change, if you've ever been in that process where something traumatic has happened that has shaken you to the core, it is very difficult in that moment to see anything hopeful. For those two men to have seen Jesus at that moment would have ignited a fire inside of them, which we'll get to here in a second. It would have changed their whole viewpoint on it. They were kept from recognizing Jesus because they couldn't possibly believe this is true. And so for you and I, when we go through that process of change, when our marriage is failing, when we see that crisis coming up, when we're beginning to use that substance that we had gotten clean of so long ago, when the job starts to turn out just like the last one was, When we have those moments where our faith is beginning to crumble again, it is very difficult for us to see anything hopeful. So why would we recognize the greatest gift in the story of Jesus is that even in traumatic moments of change, we always have a companion. Jesus meets these guys in the place where it is darkest. That's when he shows up for them. That's the moment when he decides to be present with them. In the moment when they least knew he was there, in the moment when they were hurting the most, he shows up right in the middle of that. And in doing that, he reminds us of this deep, significant truth of Scripture, which is this. In the moments we are dying, he's always with us. Deuteronomy says, the Lord your God goes with you, with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even when we're in the deep, darkness of the blood and the muck of trauma, of something shifting on us or something shifting because of our actions, even when we're in the midst of that, Scripture says, He will be with you. You can have an experiential encounter with Jesus even in the midst of the moments where you may not recognize Him. He will be with you. And so Jesus walks up beside them, and and I love what He does. I love Jesus because He's so unassuming. I mean, I love him for a lot of other reasons. But in this story, I love him for this, this thing right here. He says, he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along together? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas, and that's important later in the scriptures. He asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus basically says, so uh, what's going on? And they go, are you new? Where have you been? What rock have you been living under? What, how can you not know the stuff that's happening? And that's interesting. Think about this. The writer of Luke puts this into the story. Luke writes into the story that the guys who were closest to Jesus, when he rose from the dead, they didn't even know he was there. They didn't even recognize him so much so that they said, how can you not know what was going on? Come on. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what happened. And I can imagine Jesus looking at them going, I don't know. Do you see anything familiar about me? The beard, perhaps. The side profile, maybe this side. Maybe you guys were always on my left. Luke writes this into the story, I think, to help us. To help us understand that even when we don't get it, even when something's dying, even when something has yet to come to life, even when things are never the same, he is with us even in the midst of that. And so they respond to him, Cleopas says, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That we had hoped phrase, that's the language of change. 
That's the language of something getting shifted in us. That's the language of something being pulled out from under our feet. We had hoped expresses an expectation, something we had planned, something we had wanted, something we had looked forward to. And when change comes, there's a detour. This did not turn out the way that we had hoped, and that's why it's so painful. We can't have the child that we had hoped we would have. We are not going to do the work for the rest of our life that we hoped we would do for the rest of our life. We're not going to get into the college that we had hoped we were going to get into. We're not, we're not going to grow old with the person we expected to grow old with, that we had hoped to. We're not going to have the friendship that we had hoped would last us a lifetime. And Jesus gets it. The fact that he steps into the middle of the conversation between these, guys, these two guys also tells us he understands what that feels like because he's with them in the midst of it. He's with them in the midst of the we had hoped kind of moment. And he identifies with them because Jesus knows when things change, something dies, something comes to life, and things are never the same again. I was in uh, Nairobi, Kenya a couple years ago. And it was the middle of the night. We had flown. It's like a 23-hour flight. First of all, why do we do this to ourselves? Um, 23 hours, two different planes. We had finally landed. It's 3 in the morning there. My body feels like it's last Thursday. I don't know when it felt like it was. But we got there, and we landed, and we got to sleep a little bit. And I'm laying in bed, and in the middle of the night, in the middle of Nairobi, Kenya, I had this feeling. My heart began to race. And not in an excited way, in a oh, this is bad kind of way, like, and then I couldn't sleep. And then I started to hear these voices. Not, this is not like a spiritual thing, so please understand what I'm about to tell you. I started to hear these voices that were saying, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. Your life is going to end tonight in this foreign country away from the people you care about the most. It's 4 a.m., and I'm thinking, I'm going to die in another country. So I did probably the least wise thing a human being could ever do. I texted my wife. And I said, I think I'm going to die in Kenya. Just in case you know, if you're across the world, do not text your spouse and tell them that you may not make it back. Well, it just so happened that she was at my doctor's office, our doctor's office. And she said, what's going on with you? I said, my heart is going like a thousand miles an hour. And there are these voices and they're saying, you're not going to make it, you're not going to make it. And so she, I hear her put the phone down, and then she picks the phone back up, and she goes, are you still taking those malaria meds? I said, yeah. She goes, stop it. The doctor says to stop it. And what had happened was I was taking an antibiotic for something that I was sick over, and then this malaria stuff, and those two medications came together. My heart went nuts. My brain went nuts. But listen, in the middle of that darkness, not knowing what that means, Here's what I came to understand. The only person right now that can understand what's going on with me is him. And he is with me in the midst of the voices, in the midst of the darkness. When something pulls out from under you, I had hoped I would make it back from Kenya alive, but apparently that's not going to happen. And he said, it doesn't matter, I'm with you. So whatever change you're experiencing today, relational, personal, professional, spiritual, Jesus says, I'm with you. I'll always be with you, even in the midst of that darkness, even when something dies. Something new is going to come to life. Because here's the deal. Jesus himself experienced this. We know this from the Gospels. It says this. Jesus goes 
right before he's crucified, and he says, my father, if it's possible, he fell to the ground. He says, father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus. Again, they put this in the story. The Savior of the world actually said, if we could do this a different way, could we do that? Is there a plan R where I don't get crucified that we could do it that way? If not, that's fine, but I just at least thought I would ask because that's where we are in the midst of change. We're like, can this happen a different way? But Jesus knew to embrace this is actually part of it. And so as we go through the process of change, one thing that comes to mind is we suddenly learn that this is actually part of the process. This is part of what God is doing. Nobody is happy about crucifixion. None of us are happy about change. None of us are happy about having the rug pulled out from under us. But Jesus says, I'm not happy about this, but if this is the way it's going to go, then let's go. Even to the point of being on the cross, it says this, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and he said, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even on the cross, Jesus is saying, why is this happening? No one is okay with change that is painful. Sometimes we're not even okay with change that isn't painful. No one likes crucifixion, but it's part of it because without something dying, new things can't come to life. And so when we're on that road of change, what we do is we pray. We cry out. We don't edit it. We don't sanitize it. We cry out like David did in Psalm 130. He said, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. We say it like it is. We name the change for the pain that it creates because Jesus gave us the example of how to do it and because that's what we need to do in that moment. We don't gloss it over. We just start asking some questions. What if this is actually part of it? What if something new is going to actually come out of this? Because when we look at Jesus' story, in Jesus' story, crucifixion always leads to resurrection. There is no death in the Jesus story without new life. And that's the hope we hang on to in dark nights in Kenya. That's the hope we hang on to when we're being fired or released. That's the hope we hang on to in the divorce court or the custody hearings. That's, the, that's what we hold on to in the cancer ward is that Jesus' story tells us crucifixion always leads to resurrection. Sometimes it isn't what we thought it would be. And that's where these guys are. And so Jesus kind of grabbed them by the shoulders a little bit. And this is what he says. Jesus said to them, the two guys in Emmaus, how foolish you are, which you got to love that. They're in the midst of pain, and Jesus wants to talk about their foolishness. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I love this word foolish because it doesn't mean you guys are idiots. The word actually means you've lost track of reality. Do you know the best example of that? Infomercials are the best example of that. Six easy payments of $19.95, and they show you the picture of the person with the pants, the giant pants, and then they drop them for the smaller pants. You know what I'm talking about? That is the loss of reality. That six easy payments of anything could lead us to look like that. That's not, that's not reality. It's not healthy, and it's not reality. Jesus says, listen, listen, you guys have lost track of the bigger picture. And he begins to connect them to a bigger story. And so when we're going through the pain of change, Jesus does the same thing. He says, can I give you a bigger picture? 
This doesn't have to feel good to you right now. You don't have to be okay with this. But just understand, this is part of something bigger that's going on. Because in my story, crucifixion, the pain of change, always leads to resurrection. But for myself, I had to go through that in order to show you what that's going to look like. We don't grow. We don't grow unless things die. There is no butterfly without the cocoon of the caterpillar. There are no green leaves on trees without the mind-numbing pain of Illinois winter. <laughs> For something to come to life, things first have to die. And we can fight that, and we can try and medicate that through whatever means we want to, or we can begin to embrace it. And this is painful, and it doesn't have to be okay. But it happens to us not only personally, but this also happens to organizations. This kind of thing happens to the church. It happens to all churches. Eventually, if something new is going to come to life, there are some things that are going to have to die. And they're the stuff that we really like. There are sacred cows. And sometimes we just need to make some steaks. <laughs> and that's hard to do. There was a friend of mine who told me a story. Johnny Cash uh, any Johnny Cash fans? I almost wore black today since I was telling the story. Johnny Cash and Roy Orbison owned three plots of land right in a row in Nashville. In the middle, there was a house that was built just for parties and songwriting. On the end was Roy's house and Johnny's house. At some point in their lives, Roy Orbison's two children were playing in the kitchen of the party house and apparently set off the stove and burned the house to the ground with them inside it. Roy's two children died. And so he said, I can't live here on this block anymore. So he sold the property to Johnny Cash for $1. And he said, Johnny, this is yours with one condition. You can never build on this site again. And Johnny said, all right. And he began looking at that site of land and said, what do we do with this space? And so he called a friend with a tractor and he tilled it up and he planted a garden. And nothing would grow. So Johnny Cash in his deep southern spirituality called every pastor he knew. They encircled this plot of land, and they prayed over it. And the next season, things started to grow. And even still today, if you were to go to Nashville and visit that plot, there are blackbirds that fly over the garden and nowhere else. In places where something dies, Jesus' story says something new comes to life. In churches that feel like they need to do some dying, something new comes to life. In re relationships and careers and personal struggles, when something dies, something new will come to life because that's the Jesus story. That's the best part. And so to not live in it is missing the best part of the story. Jesus had to connect these two guys in their minds to the bigger story of what God is doing. This is not just about the crucifixion, guys. This is about the resurrection. And it all had to happen in order to move into the place where we're going. Now, for some of us, you're going through something and you're like, so what are you telling me? Are you telling me that God wants this to happen? No, it would happen whether you had faith or not. This is not something God does to us. This is something God does with us. Something dies and something comes to life.
And what God does is he uses change. God uses change to write a more beautiful story with our lives. A plot of land where a house burned down becomes a garden that feeds people. A life of addiction that is so painful it tears us apart when it becomes recovery, becomes a story that compels people and nations. The strength of a single mom who overcomes horrible circumstances becomes a story that compels others to do the same. Something dies. Something comes to life. Things are never the same again. And that's the beautiful thing about this. We have some friends who adopted three kids, one from Ethiopia, one from China, and one from the south side of Chicago. And their life, that was after they had three of their own. So their life is insane to me. If you go to their house, you're, and then you, they all have friends. So you can go to their house and go, I don't know which child actually lives here. Because none of you look the same, and then that person I've never seen before. Do you live here? You're eating out of the fridge, so I'm assuming you at least have refrigerator, right? But what they've done is they've said, I know this is messy. See, this life of resurrection, we think it is all neat and tidy. It's not. The life of resurrection is messy, but it's joyful. Because it's a part of a bigger story. Yes, our time, our chaos, things are going to die in the middle of this, but it's always resurrection. New things are always coming to life. And this is what we carry with us as we think about this. There's just these critical lines in the Bible that help us through this. Paul in Romans 8 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good, who those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. If we're going through crucifixion, this is going someplace good, someplace beautiful, someplace joyful. It is going to be a mess. It is going to be a dumpster fire on the way. But on the other side, there's resurrection. Paul then again in Romans says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. No, I don't want to glory in my sufferings. I don't like them. I'd like to stop my sufferings and glory in something else. No, but if you glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. You meet somebody who's hopeful, that person has learned how to die. That person has learned the truth and the beauty of the resurrection. Because every time that happens, something dies. Something new comes to life. And things are never the same again. But that is the last point. And the last point is the thing we have the most problem with. Crucifixion we understand because we all know what it means to have pain in our lives. We know what that feels like. Resurrection is great because we're excited about it. It's a good thing. We like that. It's the last part that really scrambles our eggs, this whole idea that when we go through this process, resurrection means nothing is the same again. What that means is you cannot go back. When we go through the process of personal, organizational, spiritual, and emotional change, we can't go back to the way that it was. Everybody has the good old days. You have good old days, don't you? That time that you look at in your mind like you're looking at it in a photo album and you're like, boy, I'd love to go back there. I'd love to fit in those jeans again. I'd love to have those friendships again. I'd love for my kids to be that age again. Mine is the 90s. Anybody else alive in the 90s? I was, oh, the 90s. I was so good. 
Everybody, the kind of clothes we wore, I look back at it now and go, what were you thinking? Why didn't anybody tell us? I was in high school. It was great. You know, wash my car and go pick up my girlfriend and go to Taco Bell. Come on now, church. I didn't care about taxes. I didn't care who was president. I kind of did. I didn't care about any of that stuff. Everybody has good old days. But if I tried to live right now like it was 1990, I think my wife and my daughter may raise some protest. (laughs) I think the people that employ me might say, hey, where have you been? Oh, Taco Bell. All day? I think it's time to come to work. (laughs) You can never go back. This is what happens with these men who are with Jesus. As they were approaching the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening, for the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. This, to me, is one of the most troubling passages in the entire Bible. You get these guys who are crushed, crushed. This guy shows up beside them and calls them foolish, and they're like, who is this guy? And then he tells them, oh, wait a minute, yeah, that is part of a bigger story. They go, they sit down at a meal together, he breaks the bread and gives it to them, they're like, Jesus, and then he's gone, and they go, whoa. And they look at each other and go, he didn't do that before. Like, he didn't just disappear into thin air before. Because when they saw that it was Jesus, there was this moment in their brains, I'm sure, that was like, we get to be with him again. We get to sit with him again, eat fish around the fire again. We get to watch him heal again. Yes, yes. And then he disappeared, and they're like, no. Come on. We want to go back to the way it was before. But resurrection means nothing can be the same again. And then they start talking to each other, and then they say this. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us, something was going on in that process of pain that said, something new is happening. Just wait. Just wait. Embrace it. Dig into it. Something new is coming along. I don't know what kind of process of change you're in, but I want to give you some new questions to ask if you're in the midst of something like this. Something has shifted. A rug has been pulled out from under you. You've received a diagnosis. You've lost a relationship. You've lost the footing spiritually that you used to have. If you're in that spot, I want to give you three questions today that I think might be helpful for you. First thing is this. Where are things dying right now? Where are things dying? And what I mean by that is, I think for most of us, we just need to name where things are falling apart. And not just name it, but embrace it. Right now, my relationship with my spouse is changing, and I don't know what to do with that. Jesus is with you. Just name it and embrace it. I look back at pictures of my daughter from when she was little and had no teeth. Those were my favorite. Like the toothless years. And I always thought when she gets teeth, she's not going to be as cute as she was then. And so I look back at those pictures, and I'm like, oh, look at her, all gummy. Uh, one day she'll be that way again. 
I won't be here for that, but one day I'll be like that, and she'll be here for that anyway. And I thought she won't be as cute when she changes like that. And then now she is just as cute, but I do miss those days. So just name it. I miss the toothless days. I miss the happier times. I miss the time when faith was easy. I miss the time when prayer felt normal. So we just name it. What things are dying? Where are things dying? And then we say, where are things, new things coming to life? Where are things happening that we couldn't possibly imagine? Where do we feel our hearts burning within us? Because Jesus is with us. This incredible personal encounter is happening right now. We may not even see it. So let's just stop and say, where is resurrection happening? And maybe that'll help us figure out that death is not the end, but it's leading to life somewhere. My church is changing, yes, but people are coming to give their lives to the Lord, so evidently something good is happening. My relationship is changing, but I'm freed from some of those things that I used to have. I'm having to ask honest questions about them. Maybe that's resurrection. And last but not least, where will things never be the same? Where do I need to leave the good old days behind? Where do I just need to make peace with this and say I can never go back I'm just going forward. When it comes to addiction, you can't go back. You have to go forward. We go forward differently, but we have to go forward. My wife and I just completed a move back to this area. We had lived in Rockford for about a year. And we went there with all the anticipation of God doing something amazing. And what happened to us was something died. Something new came to life. And things were never the same again. And we grieved moving my daughter to five schools in two years. We grieved selling two houses. Heavens, oh my gosh, talk about glorying in your sufferings. And we know that things can never be the same again. I will never be the same pastor, teacher, writer again that I was before, and that's okay. So may you, as you go through the process of change, realize things are going to die. We need to embrace them. New life will always come because that's Jesus' story. And things will never be the same again. And may you remember that this story ends at a table. And Jesus invites us in the midst of the pain of our change to come break bread and recognize I've always been there. I've always been there. We're going to share in communion right now. I'm going to ask the people who are serving and taking care of things to come forward. And just know... Just know this moment, this table is open to anyone who is going through. Maybe you're on the ascension side. Maybe you're on the resurrection side, wherever you might be. I just want to invite you. If you're taking a step towards Jesus, this is a moment where you are invited to the table. It's not for perfect people. Remember, the very first meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, Judas was there. This is not for perfect people. This is people who are hunting for a resurrection Messiah in the midst of a time of change. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we got to be here to be a part of this. And now, may the grace of your presence and the strength that says, even though things are dying, new things are coming to life, may we be strengthened by it, may we be encouraged by it, and may we move forward knowing even when things die, there is new life and nothing will be the same again. And to ask the critical questions that we desperately need in this season of our lives. 
It's in the name of Jesus we pray.